What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm so excited. I'm yeah. so glad we were able to. Yeah, absolutely. I've never done anything like this. So I feel, it's funny because I'm technically a millennial, but I feel so old. Like I don't I don't use social media as much. I use yeah. it for, for, to send photos of my kids to my fa- my yeah. kid to my family. Yeah. But anyways, I haven't done anything like this so so yeah. so live it's, and trendy. And it's it's interesting because it just we'll have such an opportunity to tell stories that yeah, you yeah. know when you're talking, you had four or five minutes the other day on on the show. Yeah. Like, we can talk and we're going to tell stories, so this Perfect. is great. Well, I am beyond excited for today's podcast because I sincerely believe that it can save someone's life. I think that someone listening today might have something that will click and will trigger that will save their life. Joining us today, cardiologist and head of prevention and rehabilitation at the Ottawa Heart Institute, Dr. Thais Coutinho. It is all about heart health, the number one killer for women. So welcome to episode 44 of Living Your Life with Leanne Lang, the podcast brought to you by Extension Marketing. And for more information, you can always head to extensionmarketing.com. By the way, when I mentioned Dr. Coutinho, she is brilliant, scientist, sought after specialist, an amazing public speaker. And for those of you listening, she's also drop dead gorgeous, which is when I try to say things about this, like it's like the full package, like on steroids. It's amazing to be able to have her here. I'm excited for us to, to be able to sit down. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Liang. That was very kind of you to say that. <laughs> I think I've been saying that ever since uh, we met. We actually met, I think the first time was at the uh, the Red Dress Golf Tournament, which is so. uh, all women. It's an yeah. all women's golf event, which raises money for a women's heart health at the, at the Institute. And I remember listening to you speak mm-hmm. and being completely in awe. Mm-hmm. by your mindset, by your way of thinking, and how passionate you are yes. about what you do. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I that will say I am absolutely passionate about everything that I do, and particularly so about women's heart health. I feel like I'm on this, on this mission that I must raise awareness, I must change the status quo. So I think I'm very glad that you perceive that, that passion that comes. And then not only from me, but pretty much every everybody I work with. Mm-hmm. Well, the Heart Institute is... it's. An amazing facility that we have here mm-hmm. in the city. I think people who have used it or know it uh, have such high standards, have such great things to say about it. Uh, and yet, hopefully, most people won't have to use the Ottawa Heart Institute. That's but right. in reality, uh, people are suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and people who are suffering that didn't typically think that they would be a heart health <laughs> or mm-hmm. a heart candidate for illness. That's right. And the Heart Institute really has a really special place uh, in the community. And it's really world-class care delivered right here in that backyard. So I'm really, really happy to be a part of that team. It took you a while to get here. Mm-hmm. And let's be realistic, you're not from here. I'm, no. I'm sure you probably picked up on the accent of very early on. Mm-hmm. Born in Brazil. That's right. Okay. And was, you know, childhood, I mean, we don't typically hear of uh, of that kind of area or people traveling from there. Yeah, so uh, so I'm Brazilian. I'm from Rio de Janeiro. I was born and raised there. And okay, that's the English way of saying Rio de Janeiro? Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm like, I think I made that out. Okay. Rio de Janeiro is how we would pronounce it in Portuguese. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm from there. And I, uh, growing up, you mentioned childhood. I would, I used to say, I want to be everything but a doctor. 
Uh, yeah, and it was very later on, I think I was just kind of drawn by the competitiveness of the selection process for medicine, and then I decided to go for it. And so you were a competitive child? Yes. Like with everything? Everything. I was competitive swimmer. I was competitive uh, show jumper. I was Brazilian champion twice in a row on show, in show jumping. In show jumping, and, wow. And then, and then actually I got accepted into medical school and I had to drop that. So competitiveness has always been a part of everything that I do. And actually, I, I, this is not a very uh, you know inspiring story, but that's what led me to medicine was competitiveness. And then once I was in the medical school, and I actually started learning medicine, dealing with patients, and in learning how to really play detective, which is the part of medicine that has always interested me. Uh, then I just loved it, and I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So it was it, it was some a, a love that I had to actually learn as I went through. Right, because you're saying like it, it was a learned love of, yeah. of medicine because you know it's it's interesting. Oftentimes we have people who had an experience. That's or right. A family member dealt with this illness, and as a child, you knew it's like I'm going to grow up and I'm yeah. going to find the cure. That's not me. Uh, that that was not you. That was not me at all. I was Com- just driven by the competition. Yeah. And because yet, it's very difficult to get in. I'm like, okay, I'll try that. Yeah. What's going to be the hardest thing for me to do? That's right. Let's go in that direction. That's it. Was uh, your family supportive? Were they? Were, were you drawn or were you raised that way? So, no, absolutely. So in my, in my family, uh, there's one more physician, a cousin of mine. He lives up in the Amazon, actually. Uh, my father's business is in healthcare, uh, but he's not a physician. So he's a, he's in, from pharmacy background, and he, hold, he has actually a business of labs in different hospitals. So I grew up in the healthcare. So you, you grew up around it. Yeah. So definitely there was support from a family mm-hmm. perspective to, to go into medicine and certainly a lot of pride. Uh, once we got there. My sister is also a physician. And where is she? In Brazil. She's still in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is she a, a family physician? Cardiologist. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Dinner dinner table talk must be quite interesting. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I um, had no influence in her choices because when she was applying for medical school and et cetera, I was already gone or, mm-hmm. or leaving uh, Brazil. So it's funny that we, we chose the same path from from different perspectives. And she was her is the perspective one... more that she had a passion for medicine? Yes. Okay. She had the usual passion. I mean, she is the one that growing up, she would watch all the medical shows. I would close my eyes, right? So she would watch all the medical shows and really want to be a part of it. So she really had that usual instinct uh, for medicine. And mine was uh, an instinct that I kind of took up once I was in it. And now that I'm in it, I can never imagine doing anything else. I find it fascinating. So you leave Brazil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where were you accepted for medical school? So I went to medical school. Uh, the Portuguese name is Universidade Federal do Rio de Janeiro, which is the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, which at least back in the day when I was there, I don't know how things are today, but certainly at the time that I was there was the best medical school in Brazil. So it was when you talk about mm-hmm. competitiveness. Yeah. So uh, so that was that was my goal. And that's when I got in. And it was an amazing experience. You get into medical school. At this mm-hmm. point, you're not focused yet on heart health. No, not like, yet. Not, no, not yet. So, I actually thought at very first, I thought I wanted to do endocrinology because, you know, it's very complex and so forth. But the moment I learned history and physical exam for cardiology, uh, that was it. 
there was no going back. That's what I wanted to do. What was the trigger? I, I just loved the, as I mentioned earlier, the detective work because uh, there's so much from a cardiology perspective that you can tell just by simply talking and examining the patient and using a stethoscope in your hands and, and looking at different veins and feeling different arteries, listening to the heart sounds. I thought that was you said amazing you detective work. Yeah, we you use feel. You can feel, so basically when you're examining a person, and that goes for the heart or mm-hmm. almost all, t- all the types of physical exam, but particularly for the cardiovascular system, you use your eyes, you're looking at things, you're looking at veins, you're looking at a particular chest deformations, you're looking to see if you find the arteries. So you're using your eyes, you're using your hands, so you're feeling for pulses, you're taking the characteristics of that pulse, is it normal, is it abnormal? Um, you're feeling the heart, you can actually feel the heart in the majority of people, is it in the right place, is it is displaced, is it big, is it sustained? So you're using all that before you ever apply your stethoscope on That's the patient. That's amazing, I, I, I had I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. I always figured you had to cut open. To oh be able my to goodness. See. No, we can tell a lot mm-hmm. just with eyes, hands, and stethoscope. And that's what interested me in cardiology because it was literally detective work. You have somebody with a symptom, you will talk to them, try to understand what that is, examine, and then go, aha, I think I know what you have. And I just love that. And from that point on, I never look back. Cardiology is uh, what I was set to do. So at this point, how old are you leaving? After doing your undergrad, you've done your medicine at, at the University yeah, of Yale. Yeah, so I, f- I graduated medical school. I had just turned 23 a few days before. So I, uh, I was freshly 23 when I finished, got my diploma. Are you and- younger than most finishing med school? Yeah. Okay. Were you advanced early on? Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to do the math here. Yeah. Well, okay, this is all starting to make sense to me. Okay. So you, you were ahead even as a child. I was ahead. So yeah. I, okay. I skipped a year when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and also you have to remember that in Brazil, we don't do college undergrad. You go from high school straight into university. Okay. So our medical school is longer than medical school in North America, for example. It's six years rather than four, but we don't do undergrad. So I was ahead a year. And then we, I still saved a quote unquote two years by not doing undergrad. Right. And the, it was six years fully involved in, the in medicine. The first two years, however, was the basic science, right? Mm-hmm. So anatomy, histology, physiology, um, biochemistry, biophysics. So the usual stuff that you would get in undergrad, you would get that in your first two years of medical school in Brazil and also in some European countries. And then you move on to full-fledged clinical medicine. Okay. So you graduate at 23. Mm-hmm with your a medical degree mm-hmm. and then you're deciding on on the specialty of cardiology. Yeah. Where do you go then? So at that time, so as in my last uh, year of medical school, I decided that I wanted to leave Brazil uh, to accomplish the professional goals that I had set for myself. Um, and then I went to the process of taking the exams uh, to compete in the United States for residency positions. Because as you know, once you I love gradu- how you say compete. Oh, because it's, it's, it's a, compet- a competition. It is what it is, you know, and especially for somebody not from the United States because people get, you know, tons and tons of different applications. And even though in my country, I went to the best medical school, if I was back in Brazil and I say, listen, I went to this university, everybody would understand right away the caliber of the of the graduate, right? Mm-hmm. But in the United States, people don't understand that. So you need to really go above and beyond to prove your worth you know, mm-hmm. to a certain degree, so you can actually compete for a good residency position. So how did you attack this competition then of of gaining residency, being from Brazil and ending up in the States? I 
had very high exam scores. <laughs> so for me, because I knew that that was going to be a triage point at the level of the residency programs. And I want I didn't want anybody to just look at my application and just toss it immediately. And I wanted it to catch somebody's attention. So I and so I made sure that because that, that's the only thing that I could do, I guess, to to prove my capability, my mm-hmm. intellectual capability, my medical knowledge. So I had very, very high exam scores. So I think that caught the attention of a number of programs. Uh, and then I went on to, to different interviews and eventually uh, decided on the place that I wanted to train. Where did you train? Where, what was the decision behind it? So I, I, uh, I chose to go to the uh, Mayo Clinic that's in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, so I was there actually for internal medicine residency at first. And then I, because every step along the way, every time you change your training, you have to apply again and so forth. But then uh, I ended up staying there subsequently for cardiology, vascular medicine, in advanced echocardiography, which is ultrasound of the heart, and research. So that was a, a nice eight years in Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic. It was a great experience. That's that's eight years. Yeah. A lot of life happens yeah. in I those actually, eight years. I, I actually recently realized that I've been in medicine for over half my life now, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would think what's going to be crazier is the impact that you were going to have on this industry and have on medicine at the end of your career. Like looking back on the on the impact that you will have had and, mm-hmm. and changes and and the science behind it. I think uh, I'm I'm fortunate to be talking to you now because I know years from now it'll be like this. This all happened um, a lot of it because of you. Mm-hmm. You have eight years. Mm-hmm. At, you're 23, mm-hmm. so uh, you know you're in your 20s. Like, are yes. you able to live a life and fall in love and start? Like, I mean, all of these things. Mm-hmm. You, you're correlating with as I'm, your very competitive nature, mm-hmm. uh, a very high intense scholastic yeah. program. You, you know, yeah. were you able to do all of it? Were you able to yeah, feel like? So I brought in my fiance with me, right? So okay. I, I married to a Canadian from PEI, and I met him when I was still in medical school back in Brazil. So for the last two years of my medical school, we were dating slash engaged. So was he there? Uh, no, did he was in PEI. I, I met him in Brazil. He was there for Carnival. <laughs> I like the little wink you just added in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if okay. people will be able to so see a, that. So a good Canadian boy yeah. heads to PE, uh, from PEI mm-hmm. heads to Rio for the Carnival. Yeah, and then yeah. We, we met. You yeah. know, karma is an incredible thing. And it's funny because... Uh, I'm here in Canada now, although that wasn't in the deck of cards right. early on, right? So, which is which is amazing. So, so we were very quickly engaged, uh, and by the time I then matched, because there's a match process for residency, so you you rank the programs, the programs rank the right. applicants, yeah. and then you match up. So, once I matched at the Mayo Clinic, then he applied for a job there and got it. Uh, and what does he do? He's a web designer, user experience designer. Okay. So he so he was able to to get a job there, and then we moved together. Okay. So when you talk wow. about falling yeah. in love, I, I brought my love with me. That's amazing. Uh, and and he has stuck around since then. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, a wonderful, beautiful two two and a half year old. That's right. Yeah. Who are by the time I think this podcast airs, you guys will be in Disney. Yes. Right. Uh, uh, we hopefully be there soon. Yes. Okay. So you have this experience. You. You're, it's not like you're trying to juggle your competitive nature and medical school and still try to find a life. Like it's, I think, wonderful that you had all of this foundation yes. heading in. Mm-hmm. So, what did you love most? Mm-hmm. Like you were really able to focus on your studies. Yeah, and yeah. What did you love most about 
being at the Mayo Clinic? Like, um, Oh, so many things to love. I'll tell you what I didn't love was the weather, uh, which uh, was difficult. But the weather, actually, we always joke about the weather in Minnesota. But, you know, that's very compatible with studying. Because if it's very cold and, and snowy outside, then you're going to stay in and, and study hard. So, But what I love the most about the Mayo Clinic, I uh, a few things. One is just, just being in this top-notch world-class hospital surrounded and learning from the people that are creating the knowledge that we have today, right? So as I'm rotating through the different specialties, I'm working with people that are writing the guidelines that I'm now reading, right? And and being inspired by that and really being surrounded by really state-of-the-art, top-notch medicine. And it's funny, I always joke that, you know, in the US, they always have the ranking of the hospitals. Mm-hmm. So uh, for the eight years I was there, Mayo Clinic was always ranked uh, number two as best hospital, second best hospital in the United States. And the year I left, they moved on to number one. So I, all I had to say, you know, all I had to do is just kick out the Brazilian, send them to Canada. <laughs> and now they are the best hospital in the United States. But, but being in that environment, mm-hmm. this best hospital environment where the patient was really, truly the focus. Uh, there are lots of... Um, of uh, Mayo Clinic uh, aphorisms that uh, are exchanged when you when you start to learn the culture. But one thing that was always said that has that I have taken with me uh, since then is the the best interest of the patient is the only interest to be considered, and that's really the the foundation of the medicine that's practiced there. We are all uniquely different, mm-hmm. and so it, I would assume not one single case, like. Yeah, everyone has a l- something different that makes them unique. That's absolutely right. So it's and we practice this anywhere at the Mayo Clinic in Ottawa in Brazil. It's just the way the practice is. So you learn medicine based on populational science. So basically, you're applying what you know and you you recommending therapies and drugs and etc. based on what you know works at the populational level. But you're working with an individual that may or may not be directly applicable to the population. So you have to kind of take in the nuance. And nowadays, there is a whole field called personalized medicine mm-hmm. that is um, that is kind of starting to, to head into that direction. Do you like that? I like that a lot. And I always say it now, I, I think is one of the the kind of the hot spots in terms of you know things in in medicine and science is personalized medicine. How can we make sure that you get the right treatment at the right time for your specific pathology? But I always say that you know the first step in personalizing medicine is finding out is your patient a man or a woman, right? And it goes it, this now ties very much in with women's health and the women's heart health center because we're very good at thinking of amazing new genes or amazing new protein markers that can detect the particular disease early on. And I'm like, how about we start with, are you a man or are you a woman? And why is this so critical? I think it will surprise people. And I know every time you start your talk, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the understanding of people don't get how heart attacks, heart disease is is the number one killer for women because we've associated it for so long with, Mm -hmm. with cancers, especially with breast cancer. Yeah. it is such a different disease in women mm-hmm. uh, as to why you're asking this question. Yeah, Are yeah. you a man or a woman? Yeah, and the thing is, every physician, every nurse, every healthcare provider, we learn from books and articles. And these books and articles have been written based on cardiovascular science that was based, in, based on men. So we know back in the 1950s, with the emergence of 
evidence-based medicine and the populational science, a lot of the studies were, were based on men for a number of reasons. One, um, people didn't think or understand at that time that women could have a heart attack, for example. Women could have cardiovascular diseases saying, oh, you're protected with your estrogen, you're good to go. So we weren't included. Second, there was also, from a scientific method perspective, um, some scientists would say, listen, women have so much variation. They have menstrual cycles. Everything changes. They go into menopause. They get pregnant. There's so many things that change that this is not compatible with rigorous scientific method. So that was one more reason women were excluded. And then there was this concept that Every woman was pregnant to prove otherwise, and you do not want to do harm to the baby. Even if you're not pregnant, you must assume they are, because you cannot even ever consider for uh, ever consider the possibility of harming the baby. So one more reason we were not included. So then science for for cardiovascular disease, particularly, but I think this applies to every specialty, really lag behind uh, uh, for women. And now we are beginning for the past 15 years or so to understand in a deep at a deeper level that it is different. Things are different. They are not, ex some things are exactly the same, but some are not. And we are making good headway. We are, but why? I, I mean, it's such a basic question and I'm sorry to, but why is it the number one? Number killer. one killer? Yes. It, so in the world, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of men and women. It's, it's the nature of society nowadays. Uh, thankfully, uh, if you actually look at the temporal trends in terms of cardiovascular disease and mortality, we are currently in a downtrend for both men and women. So there okay. was a there was an upswing at a some certain point, and it kind of plateaued, and now cardiovascular disease mortality is coming down for both men and women, with the exception of one subgroup, and this subgroup is young women, women younger than age 50 or so. This is the only group that is still continuing to experience an upward trend in terms of cardiovascular disease mortality. Okay, so essentially my listeners right now. Okay. <laughs> you know, like this is exactly the group that we're in. You've yeah. got um, young moms mm -hmm. and working moms mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, not yet retired. Like we are in the, that group yeah. are the ones that are seeing mm -hmm. the biggest rise. That's it. Is there are there determining factors right now? I mean, there's I mean, based on the science, yeah. why is this the only grouping that's going up? So, just a, a parenthesis before we talk about that, the absolute numbers are still low, right? If you compare right. yes. the absolute numbers of women in their forties, for example, having a heart attack compared to uh, men in their eighties, the absolute number is lower. I but the that. trends is what we're talking about. So, uh, it, it's still partially understood, but it is felt that the two main reasons for the um, increase in cardiovascular disease in young women is smoking and sedentary lifestyle. I would, I'm surprised by smoking because mm -hmm. that seems to be on a downward decline, Yeah. Uh, but the sedentary lifestyle. For a woman younger than age uh, 50, smoking increases their risk for cardiovascular disease about 400%. It's incredible. It, it should not be something that could ever be allowed to occur for anybody in general, but particularly for young people. So when I go around and I see young people smoking, it just, it just gives me chest pain myself. And I wish I could just go to each one of them personally and say, please do not do that. I have seen the other side. For example, 
Um, obviously, as a cardiologist, we treat people with heart attacks all the mm -hmm. time. And most people with a heart attack would be in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth. But every cardiologist, we have seen a number of people in their 30s and sometimes in their 20s come in with a, with a full-blown heart attack. And I can almost guarantee almost every single one of those people are smokers. So if there was one message that I could send out to, to the young crowd, to anybody, particularly to the young crowd, is just don't do that. Smoking. Don't smoke. Uh, the second factor was the sedentary lifestyle. That's right. That's a much different, difficult yes. one to battle. That's right. That's right. And I, I myself have my own struggles. We were just talking mm -hmm. before the podcast how I, I, have, I, I can only exercise at five in the morning. So if I don't do it at five in the morning, I can never do it at all. And everybody has that kind of struggle. When can I fit in exercising my routine? But the evidence is very, very clear. Exercise for anybody is the fountain of youth. You will keep... You know, people keep talking about polypill. Oh, I want a pill that I can have my aspirin, my cholesterol medicine, my blood pressure medicine, everything in there that will prevent heart disease. Well, exercise is the polypill because it's been shown to prevent just about everything when it comes to uh, cardiovascular disease. Personally, I, I do res in my research mm -hmm. program, I study vascular health, or in other words, I study vascular aging. So basically, uh, I'm 37 years old, but how old are my arteries, right? So that kind of, mm, that kind of yeah. thing. Uh, and it's very amazing. <laughs> it's like the quizzes that we do online. How, yeah. how old are you? What's your real age versus <laughs> your, your, your health age, right? That's, like they that, do that. But that's yes. it, because you, your arteries will age they may not age exactly like your chronologic years. So what I do in my research is I study vascular health and vascular aging and so forth. And I'm always amazed because once in a while, there's a person that pops in in my lab and I assess their arteries and their arterial health and their arterial age is just as good as somebody's in, in their 30s, even though this, this person's in their 70s. So I always make a point to go and talk to them because I want to know, what's, you know mm -hmm. what's the secret. And the answer is always the same, is habitual, lifelong exercise. That's the thing. It just keeps the arteries healthy. It prevents heart attack. It prevents stroke. It prevents heart failure, prevents high blood pressure, improves mood. It's just the most amazing thing. I think I always have... Um a heartfelt reaction mm -hmm. uh, when you hear of someone who's incredibly active. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, well, they were uh, runners every day. Yeah. Like they were big runners and they died of a heart attack at 40 something. Mm -hmm. How it, it's almost, it, those are the really the toughest ones to explain when mm -hmm. people are doing all of those things, right? Yeah. To stay and keep their heart healthy mm -hmm. and something triggers. So that's the exception though. It's not mm -hmm. the rule, but those are the exceptions that mark you and make you remember, right? Uh, if an 80-year-old has a heart attack, you won't, you may not remember that. But if a 40-year-old has a heart attack, it, you know, mm -hmm. something happens, you remember that. But we, we all have to remember that when it comes to cardiovascular disease, particularly heart attacks, since we're talking about this, or any buildup of plaque in any arterial bed, this is always a combination of two things. What are your genetics and what is your environment? Mm -hmm. Always. It's never one alone. For some people... There's a strong genetic predisposition that runs in the family. Some of these genetics we can't quantify, some we can't, because medicine still hasn't discovered it. But so for some people, the genetics are strong. For some people, they have no genetic predisposition, but their lifestyle is mm -hmm. terrible, right? They are obese, they eat at McDonald's every day, they don't exercise, they smoke. And for the far majority of people, is a combination of both. So the scenario you just described is something that, um, the person probably already had 
the genetic makeup that was predetermining what was going to happen and didn't matter what they did. What I always tell patients, because sometimes I see patients have a heart attack in their 40s, early 50s, sometimes even late 30s with no risk factors, no smoking, Mm -hmm. doing everything right. And obviously people, they they feel bad. They put it upon themselves. Listen, I've been doing all I can to prevent this and how come I didn't? The truth is, if they have already such strong genetics, it could be that disease would have manifested way earlier had, had they, they not, not followed that lifestyle. Like, I'm terrified. My mm-hmm. dad died very young of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 56. He had just turned 57 the day before. Mm-hmm. So he had just turned 57 and died of a massive heart attack actually on the golf course, which was two weeks before my wedding. So mm-hmm. like, I, th- I, I wish to God that we had had access, that he had made it as far as the Heart Institute, yeah. that I would have been able to use the, yeah. you know, the, the services and the brilliance there, but he, he never made it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think about it all the time yeah. that genetically mm-hmm. it's in my makeup now. It could be. So in that, And also, I just want to put this into context. Risk is not fate, right? And that's something that I always have to remind people, especially as I work in women's heart health, because we often have to share very unpleasant facts about the current state of cardiovascular health of women. And I always say, risk is not fate, right? If you have a risk, it doesn't mean you will have that. But understanding the risk is truly the first step to preventing it. We know that 80% of the time you can prevent cardiovascular disease. 20% of the time you can't, but 80% of the mm-hmm. time you can. That's a big that's a big number. That's a big yeah. number. So when you look at this at the populational level, you can make such important public health impacts by uh, engaging in in the uh, proper preventative measures. What I found interesting, and because I'm listening and I'm like, I, I want to go back and talk about this because you mentioned mm-hmm. things. You were talking about, the, you know, when you're in your lab yeah. and you're seeing, you know, this, you know, these results. And then you're like, I have to go, you you see it on a, you know, under a microscope, Mm -hmm. you want to go and actually see that person for real. What was it leaving the Mayo Clinic Mm -hmm. that brought you here to Ottawa for this opportunity to take on all of these different aspects of of the heart? Because that was a big decision to leave the Mayo or to go, where am I going to settle? That's right. It was a big decision. And in Mayo, uh, in Rochester, I was my second home. And you know the people there were like my family. It was it was a it was a difficult decision to make for sure. But the what attracted me here to Ottawa, it was actually uh, were you a number of things. Like did the heart? Were you approached? Did they come calling? Uh, uh, kinda. So basically, I I was about to graduate. I was looking for job opportunities. I actually was probably going to stay there. One of my mentors had connected uh, with Dr. Peter Liu here at the Heart Institute, who had just taken up as the uh, VP for research and, and connected and said, listen, we have this person who's graduating now. Uh, and that's how kind of my name came to the attention of uh, the, uh, the colleagues here at the Heart Institute. And even though they weren't particularly looking for somebody with my particular skill set, because my particular niche lies in uh, uh, vascular medicine, preventive cardiology, women's health. And uh, they weren't particularly looking for me, but once they f- heard about me, then they, they came and, and suggested I would come here and you know give a talk, interview, and eventually a job offer followed uh, quickly. Um, and what interested me about the Heart Institute was actually a number of things. First, the opportunity to be 
in the Heart Institute for cardiologists, this is like Disneyland, right? You like you, you're surrounded by heart stuff, and then it's like very very uh, exciting to to be in the Heart Institute. So that was one thing. Two, I knew very well the impact that the Heart Institute had in Canada and in the world, the quality of care that was provided, uh, the relationship we had to the community, and the opportunities for growth. Uh, so I saw that as an opportunity as well. Uh, third, uh, as part of the recruitment process, um, I was offered a lot of incentives because as a young clinician scientist, you want to, obviously, by the time you're being considered for a job is because you've been successful doing your training. And it's, you know, very important that you have the right skills and the right uh, foundation and opportunities to continue building on those mm -hmm. successes. So uh, they offer me a very good package that would allow me to then develop my research program with protected time and, and the lab and research uh, uh, funds and so forth. And I saw that as a great opportunity to, to start afresh, but start a program just the way I wanted it and, and build it up from the ground. That's a dream. It was great. To have to create a program yeah. and build it. Yeah. It was, it's a lot of work, <laughs> Yes, but it's, um, it was, so I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do. And that's why it was so attractive to me. When you, can you, if someone asks you that basic question, what exactly is your research when you talk about the lab? Oh okay. my goodness. Do we okay. have another five hours or? <laughs> I'm going to give you as much time as you yeah. want. This podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They're a new breed of marketing agency that acts as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that will grow your business. I can speak to this personally, as I've been using the Extension Marketing team to help me launch and grow my business. Founder Pat Whalen has been a lifesaver for me, a genuine coach guiding me along the way into uncharted territory. Tell them you're a friend of the show and receive a free one-hour consultation. Check them out at extensionmarketing.com. I study, like I was saying earlier, Archer Howth, uh, and the way I do that is by looking at the, at the hemodynamics of the arteries, the stiffness of the arteries, the elasticity, how the heart, the arteries interact with the heart, and so forth. I do that non-invasively, so no needles involved. It's all based on ultrasound and, and fancy pressure measurements. Uh, and with that, I'm able to, one, look at sex differences in Archer Howth and Archer Aging, and how that difference between men and women in the arterial aging process and arterial hemodynamics, how they play a role in some of the sex differences that we observe in cardiovascular diseases. So in a, in a very simple kind of broad uh, sense, that's what I do. And then I, I, I study specific diseases that I thought have a, a good uh, opportunity to, to explore that mechanism. Do you do surgeries? I don't do surgeries, no. Okay. You do not want me doing surgery, absolutely not, no. So the, the training pathway is completely different. Okay. So if you want to be a heart surgeon, yes. out of medical school, you go to general surgery and then cardiac surgery. If you want to be a cardiologist or a clinician, out of medical school, you do internal medicine and then cardiology. How much are... Can you understand what you they're what the surgeon is going to see when they open up yeah, yeah, yeah. the heart? Absolutely. Are, is there an interest for you to see or when there's a unique case that you that you saw in the lab, but you want to be able to see it? Or do you have access to oh, understand it, and see? You're just not. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. we've all done that. Mm -hmm. So definitely as part of training, you, even though you're in the in the clinical 
uh, uh, aspect, you always train with the surgeons. So as part of cardiology training, I spend a lot of time in the OR with learning with the surgeons. Uh, and sometimes if you have a very interesting case, you're, you're certainly welcome. Nobody will block you at the mm -hmm. OR door. So if you really want to go see, I want to go see if the diagnosis I made with my echocardiogram is correct. And right. you're certainly welcome to go there and see. It's always, it's a great learning because you can take it from beginning to end that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we are getting what you do. Mm -hmm. I think I'm getting an understanding. For people then who are listening or watching, yeah. let's go through. Mm -hmm. Let's go through this checklist. Okay. If we can, of of when you talk about risk and prevention. Yeah. There are really good factors that we can take into consideration. Mm -hmm. And because we talked about that upward unfortunate statistics of yeah. w women especially mm -hmm. um like 30s to 50s mm -hmm. uh, that number is going up what do we need to recognize yeah um because oftentimes women are the first ones to be like eh, it's nothing mm -hmm. oh yes yeah, absolutely <laughs> i'm not you know mm -hmm. this this numbness on my left arm is uh, it'll go away That's like it. let's go through how we can be better Yes. So in terms of cardiovascular risk factors, we have the ones that apply to men and women. And these are the things that I think most people will have heard about, starting with healthy diet, exercise, or, you know, recommendation is 150 minutes, moderate to vigorous exercise per week, uh, avoiding smoking, diabetes, avoiding diabetes if you can, but if you have it controlling well, high blood pressure, avoiding high blood pressure, which you can do by living healthy uh, in, in some cases, but if you do have high blood pressure, controlling it well as well, um, and cholesterol, you know, uh, many, making sure that your cholesterol is always at target, and the target is different based on the person. Can I ask you a question? Okay. Mm -hmm. Eggs. <laughs> yes, I eat a lot of eggs. Okay, you know, there was, like, there was like so much science. It was yeah. like, yes, you want eggs. No, you don't want eggs. So yeah, you yeah. just want the egg white, you know? Can, are you able to give us a... Yeah, yeah, So the eggs, if you actually eat the yolk, there's a good chunk of cholesterol in the yolk. So the very conservative older guidelines would say, you know, no, no more than two egg yolks or full eggs per week. But I think nowadays, uh, we understand that that is not it was it's not that bad. So I I'm vegetarian, I eat a lot of eggs myself. Um, as long as you are, you don't have a genetic problem with your cholesterol, and you're trying to really, really limit the cholesterol that you eat, eggs would be fine. Eggs are good. Mm -hmm. Okay, eggs are good to get the thumbs up for, yeah, yeah. for the eggs and the cholesterol. Okay, so going back to those factors. Yeah, so we talk about the, uh, the, the conventional risk factors. So all of these things is actually quite nice, because if you're able to reach age 50, and not have any of these risk factors in your back pack already, right? If you don't have diabetes, you don't have hypertension, don't have high cholesterol, you don't smoke, you exercise and you eat healthy. By age 50, your chance of having a heart attack or stroke, cardiovascular disease for the rest of your life is only 5%. So that's These are pretty good odds. These are very, very good odds. So this is why, you know, even if you're listening in, you're in your 20s, 30s, teens, 40s, um, let's work on this, right? Because if we get it to age 50, with none of these on our on our portfolio or risk factors, we are really, really in good shape for the future. So that's the one thing. So those are the conventional risk factors. Then uh, we have what we call female-specific risk factors that nobody talks about. Because if you, if you go to your doctor today, uh, you said, doctor, what's my cardiovascular risk for mm -hmm. the next 10 years or whatever? They're going to pull up a risk score calculator. It can be a Framingham or a Reynolds score in, in lifetime. And these risk score calculators, they were made on 
research based on research studies that included mostly men and they do not incorporate a lot of female specific risk factors that we know today are very important for a woman's future cardiovascular risk. And what are those? So one of those for example is when a woman gets pregnant uh, if they have what we call hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, that's gestational hypertension, which is high blood pressure during pregnancy. Uh, and then that can be, uh, that can escalate to preeclampsia, which I think a lot of people will have heard about, and eclampsia, which is preeclampsia with seizures and, and, and brain uh, abnormalities. So those hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, they increase a woman's future risk for cardiovascular disease by at least twofold, at least. Depending on how severe it was, it can be as high as three or fivefold, which is actually more potent than the conventional risk factors that we know about. If you actually look, for example, at high blood pressure, diabetes, or smoking, these risk factors that we call conventional increase a person's future cardiovascular risk by about two to threefold. And I'm just telling you here that if you've had preeclampsia, for example, at least twofold increase in the risk of cardiovascular disease. So these are things you need to take seriously. When mm -hmm. you're more concerned about the baby mm -hmm. and, and healthy pregnancy yeah. and you're given this statement by your doctor, it needs to be... You need to listen. You need to listen, but here's the... And this is why I always love to speak publicly about this because it is very likely that a lot of women will not be given this statement by their doctors because even though there is actually very, very robust scientific evidence to support the numbers I just gave you, we're talking about meta-analysis studies with 4 million people. This is like robust evidence. Somehow, people don't know about this. Women don't know about this community doesn't know about this. A lot of physicians still don't know about this. M many do, of course, but mm -hmm. some don't. So many times, uh, as a woman has a preeclampsia, for example, and then the baby is born, they think, okay, this is now a page of the book of my life that I can just turn. Here we go, we start from scratch. And they may never hear that they have increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Again, risk is not fate. It's mm -hmm. not meant to say they will have it. But they need to know the risk is there because, for example, if I jump in my car right now and I don't even realize that I could possibly be in a car accident, I'm not going to put my seatbelt, right? For you to be able to put your seatbelt and protect yourself, you have to know that being in an accident is within the realm of possibility. So when it comes to these women, for example, that have had gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, if they don't even realize that cardiovascular disease is in the realm of possibility, they may not engage early on in this very well-proven uh, behaviors and risk factor control uh, uh, strategies that we know work, right? Mm. So we have been talking a lot about this um, here at the Heart Institute and nationally. We have a program at the Women's Heart Health Center that is actually designed to capture these women, hopefully at the six, after the six-week postpartum visit, and bring them to the Heart Institute to start um, a personal health coaching mm -hmm. pro program that they actually receive um, over the course of a year health coaching to help them really nail down those cardiovascular risk factors, really optimize their behavior so they start early on on the right foot. So these are the changes that are being made. This mm -hmm. is the scientific-based proof. That's and right. This, these are the changes that are happening, especially differences for men and for women. Mm -hmm. So that was one major thing, and yeah. how pregnancy plays a, a massive role. What are yeah. some of the others? Some of the other ones. For example, uh, menopause. 
simple. We all go through it. Um, we know that a woman's cardiovascular risk increases significantly after menopause. It is felt to be at least partially due to the protective effects of estrogen that we know are very good for the vasculature while we have it. But there's probably more to the story than just that. But that's one of the major things. So uh, menopause itself is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, for women, uh, going back to the pregnancy, uh, we talk about hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, gestational diabetes also increases a woman's risk, not to the same degree as preeclampsia, for example, and is mostly mediated by having diabetes later in life, but still increases the risk. Um, or let's say, have you ever heard of intrauterine growth restriction? Baby, basically, the baby is too small for gestational age. So during the pregnancy, they're checking with the ultrasound. When the baby is born, they are supposed to be a certain weight, but they are much, much mm -hmm. smaller. Uh, that is also a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, so all of these pregnancy-related things that uh, we think that once the baby is born, it's over, but they actually translate into higher risk later in life. Uh, for women, it's also important to consider what we call um, rheumatologic or inflammatory diseases. Uh, if people have heard of lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, these conditions, for example, also increase future risk for cardiovascular disease in men or women uh, by at least 50%, except that the far majority of patients with these conditions are women. So this particular risk factor is more applicable to women uh, than it is to men. So all of these different things are what we call female-specific or female-predominant risk factors that we have to take into consideration, but they're not incorporated into any of the standard calculators mm -hmm. that we use to estimate risk. This is where the change is happening. Yes. How long do you think this will needs to happen or the discussion needs to be evolving mm -hmm. for this to become more common knowledge, yeah. to become more common discussion. Yeah. Um, and are we on that right track? We are certainly on the right track. I uh, certainly, if you compare where we are now, and when I say we, I talk about medicine in general, um, not us here in Ottawa, but just overall, we are in such a better position now than we were a decade ago. If you actually look at overall cardiovascular outcomes, cardiovascular death, for example, and the differences between men and women, 15 years ago, there was this gigantic gap. Like women had much, much higher cardiovascular mortality than men. And over the past 10, 15 years, through a lot of awareness campaigns, mm -hmm. a lot of incentives from funding agencies for research, journals, a lot of specialists that are going out and researching this and speaking publicly about it, because all of these things together, the gap has been closing. Mm -hmm. So what we see today in 2018 is that the gap is nearly closed. So we have come a long, long, long way, but we still want to make more progress. We don't like to hold this title of being the number one killer of women in the world. We don't like that. So we, we want to get out of that category. So there's still work to be done. There is, but I think the awareness aspect has been huge. And I think yeah. maybe for me in the position that I was in, because I was hosting events and I'm seeing events, I was often listening to the speakers. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember listening to some of the speakers that have that have spoken at the uh, at the red dress yeah uh, at the golf event which their stories have been mm -hmm. phenomenal but yeah. there's some that trigger because you see yourself mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> in the woman that's talking you know yeah. she was 40 and you know the kids were on the run and she started to feel numbness uh mm -hmm. you know and she was just thinking yeah well it's a little bit of a tightening i'm just gonna you know let it go and then yeah. a day later you know they realize they're in full-blown attack and are mm -hmm. you know, 
a couple hours later in, in a surgery. That's it. What are what should we be looking for, mm-hmm. especially as we're talking about symptoms and to know because there's prevention, right? And if you catch it early enough, yeah. you can save lives. Mm-hmm. So in terms of symptoms, because you touch upon an, another important area, because we talk about prevention up to this point, mm-hmm. but now let's say a person has disease. They do have a 99% blockage in one of their heart arteries. Uh, what, is, what are we referring to? Like, we hear people, I had a bypass surgery. I mm-hmm. had this, like, what is that? So a bypass surgery is something that our colleagues in cardiac surgery do for people that have multiple blockages in the heart arteries. Because we all have three main heart arteries, and of course, they all branch into others. And if you have such extensive disease of your arteries, instead of putting multiple stents, you may be better off by going into surgery and having those bypass grafts uh, put in instead. When you talk about blockage, mm-hmm. what's being blocked? I mean, I know we have the artery, right? So yeah. what what's blocking it? So the coronary arteries are the arteries that supply blood to the heart. So as you know, the heart pumps blood to the body into the aorta and right out of the aorta, this circulation comes back into the heart to feed the heart. So those arteries are called the coronary arteries. So when we talk about heart attack, we're talking about diseases, uh, typically blockages, but can be other mechanisms too, of the arteries that feed the heart. And the heart needs high levels of oxygen at all times. And if it does not receive the amount of oxygen it needs for even a few minutes, it starts to die. So that's why it's, you know, it's such a dramatic thing. Uh, and in the, it's, it's considered an emergency. We always say in cardiology and in medicine that time is muscle. The heart's a muscle, right? So time is muscle. The earlier you can get the artery open and restore the blood flow, the more muscle you're going to save. So when we talk about blockages, you're talking about blockages of those particular arteries that bring blood flow to the heart. Okay. So, so we're talking about symptoms then, mm-hmm. because again, I go back to what I said earlier about us uh, clinicians learning medicine from textbooks that were written based on men, right? So then we have become quite good in medicine, uh, recognizing what we call the Hollywood heart attack, which is if you were to watch a Hollywood movie today, mm-hmm. if they had to depict in the movie a heart attack. Every physician can recognize that. It's usually going to be a person clenching the chest and going, oh, I'm having this most severe chest pain right here in the middle. So we are very good at that. Uh, but we have, what we have come to learn over the past few decades is that women don't always present like the Hollywood heart attack. Some do. And if they do, they're golden. People will hopefully recognize it and, and treat it. And the person will recognize it too. Mm-hmm. But what we know now is that not always women present like that. And we know that women more so than men can have chest pain that is not just the classic type. The classic type of chest pain for a heart attack, it's right here behind the breastbone. And it feels like a squeeze or a tightness. So some people say, I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest, a heaviness. Uh, it can go up to the neck, it can go up to the left arm. But women more so than men may have a pain that is not quite in the center. It may be more to the side or to the other side. It may be sometimes in the back, it may be here in the belly, or it may be just in the jaw. I've had a patient actually that kept going to the dentist multiple times because she had this jaw pain and then the dentist keeps looking at it, nothing's wrong. Next thing you know, that was her equivalent of the chest pain. It was the pain in the jaw. So women can have pain in other places. Okay, how the jaw? 
Like, is it? It's just the way we, we in in medicine we are very familiar with referral pain. Mm -hmm. So basically, for example, you can have a gallbladder problem and have few pain here behind your backbone. Mm -hmm. So uh, just the way that the neural networks work in the brain, uh, you can have referral of pain. So okay. the pain from the heart can be referred up to the jaw. Okay. And it can be referred also typically to the left arm, sometimes the right, but much more so to the left arm. Uh, women are also more likely than men to have a pain that is not a squeezing. They may describe that as a sharp feeling, or I hear a lot women talking about indigestion. And they really think it's indigestion. We really think it's indigestion. Sometimes it sounds just like indigestion, and common things being common, most indigestion will be indigestion, but sometimes it will be a heart attack. My When I went through my dad's yeah. items, he had a ton of Pepto-Bismol indigestion, mm -hmm. like that were just loads, and I'm like, he had probably had little miniature like a ton of them and it, had always just thought it was indigestion it's it's very possible so the truth is like i said earlier we don't want people listening to say oh my goodness no. i have indigestion i'm gonna run to the cardiologist but Most i was so mad at myself you yeah kind of going why didn't why you know i'll give you an example so most indigestion will be indigestion yes but sometimes <laughs> it will not be and i'll give you another example because i always i always think that examples kind of help bring it to life so i met a woman I want to say maybe two years ago, met her after the fact. She was in her 70s, no risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Uh, and her symptoms were as follows. So she would have what she described as indigestion. She said, I, have, I feel indigestion. So what I, she used to do is take a Mountain Dew, drink the Mountain Dew, burp. Sorry for saying this mm -hmm. on the air. Yeah. Uh, and then feel better. So she described that to her doctor. Everybody agreed. Had I seen her that day, I would perfectly agree this is indigestion, right? So she kept doing that, kept doing that, until one day she had the indigestion. She drank the Mountain Dew, uh, bur burped, did not feel better. In fact, kept feeling worse and starting to get this feeling that there's something else. And as, that's something that I hear from women all the time, that it feels like this, but I just had this kind of sixth sense that there was something wrong, right? And that's what she felt at that time. So she called 911. And when they came in, they put the ECG, she was having a full-blown heart attack. If you've ever been to the Heart Institute and you've heard people say, cold, stemmy up in the, uh, in the microphone, that's like a super emergency. People are taken straight into the cat lab because the artery is completely blocked. So that's how she presented. Indigestion that was relieved with Mountain Dew. That's not written in any single book that we're going to read. Right, So we have to keep an open mind as clinicians and also when I say we, I'm also speaking as a woman of the community, we have to keep an open mind that some symptoms may not be just like the textbook and if something feels wrong to you, you know, it's not a bad idea to check it out. We have had women that have said, you know, I was having nausea for no reason at all um, and I thought it was something in my stomach, turns out eventually they had a heart attack and that was the cause for the how, nausea. Okay, how long can you be having these symptoms? So a heart attack isn't necessarily one big bang boom. Mm -hmm. If you're going through these symptoms as this woman had been doing for a long period of time yeah. with the burping, yeah. like can this, how long can some of these symptoms happen for? So the heart attack is indeed the, the big bang, like you mentioned, right. but very often people have warning signs. 
whether that they're presenting with the classic symptoms that I described earlier or the not so classic symptoms, sometimes people have warning signs. They say, every time I climb a flight of stairs, I get that darn indigestion. Or every time I have, uh, uh, I argue with a family member or I have a stressful situation at work, I feel whatever it is, the symptom that they're reporting. Uh, so sometimes people have warning signs. How important, and I'm sorry, because you just mentioned it, but like stress. Yeah. Okay, how how big of a correlation is stress mm-hmm. and and heart disease? So a twofold, there's a twofold answer to this. So the type A personalities that we all have come to learn and understand uh, have been associated with increased risk for cardiovascular disease. But the particular aspect of stress that I think um, relates very much to women's health is that we see all the time women whose cardiovascular symptoms are brought on by emotional or mental stress. So again, going back to our textbooks, our textbooks would typically say that is exertion, right? So when you're doing something that is actively and physically demanding, then you will have the heart symptoms. But what we see in men and women, but a lot more in women in my experience, is that sometimes there's no physical activity, it is the mental stress. So sometimes they are in a difficult conversation at work, or they, I've had stories of people preparing for PhDs, or you know, just having overall stress in life, which we all have, and that triggers the symptoms. And that sometimes is counterproductive because the woman herself feels like it's all in her head. Oh, I'm stressed. I'm having this chest tightness. I must, I'm so emotional. I, I must be just going crazy. And they sometimes go in to talk to their providers about it. Not uncommonly, these women carry already a diagnosis of depression and anxiety. That's uh, it's something that we see commonly. And people often say, okay, you know, you're, you're young, you don't have risk factors. I mean, sometimes they do, but, but these symptoms are not classic. They're not typical for heart disease. It's very possible that your anxiety is, you know, playing a, a role in this. So sometimes it gets kind of cornered, uh, and what we see is that, you know, in women this becomes a, a really a real uh, focus in terms of, uh, of a predisposing factor for cardiovascular disease. We know actually there was a study I thought it was fascinating. I'm a big fan. Uh, published earlier this year in one of the major cardiovascular journals, Circulation, they actually did a mental stress test. And I've been telling uh, my colleagues at the Heart Institute, like, we need, listen, we need a mental stress test because somebody comes to me as a cardiologist. They say, I have pain when I walk, pain in my chest when I walk. Very good. I'll put you on the treadmill. I'll see what happens to the heart. Case closed. Some of our patients, especially women, they don't say that. They say, I have some pain in my chest or whatever symptom it is when I have mental stress. But then if I go and put them on the treadmill or the bike or I give them some medication to stress the heart, I'm not quite simulating the situation that brings on the pain. So I always like, okay, we gotta have a mental stress test. So they did that. Uh, So they did a regular stress test and then they did a mental stress test. And the mental stress test consisted of getting people to just get up and give a five minute speech like impromptu. Mm -hmm. Like you have two minutes to prepare and you have five minutes to talk about subject, whatever it is, like the Cold War, boom, go. That's enough to cause people some sort of distress, but certainly not even enough to simulate real life stressors, right? right? So when they did that, they found that a number of people actually have proven ischemia, which is decreased blood flow to the heart in the setting of mental stress. And the proportion of women that actually had that was uh, twice as high as the number of men that had proven 
documented low blood flow to the heart in the setting of a mental stress. So it can it can occur. So is this something in your role that you can start be pushing for? Is yeah. that there's new mental stress, mental tests that are done. Yeah, so these are all still in the investigation. Yeah. You have to understand we, we live in a healthcare system where um, publicly funded, the government will fund the things that are conventional and so forth. So by the time we actually get something to be paid for and funded, this has to be a lot of research to prove that it works. So this is very incipient. That was the first time I had ever seen a mental stress test ever being described. And you, you say this because you read it in the journal, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So how important is continual reading and studying all the time all the time so uh we're in november now right i'm a little yeah. lost in space and time so last late, month late, yeah uh i was in harvard for two weeks taking the course right and and then the week after i was at the american heart association uh scientific session so we're always learning because this field evolves so quickly that if you spend three months without reading anything you're already obsolete so you have to be always kind of catching up so you need to always be passionate. I mean, mm-hmm. you you think of someone who's been maybe at this 20, 30 years and the mm-hmm. thought of having to go home and then read, you know, like I'm thinking it's a certain mindset that wants to continually learn yeah. while performing their job. Yeah, and I think a lot of, if most if not all healthcare providers love learning. You know, you go into it knowing, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. But we have to. If the moment you stop learning, that's the end of your career because you just cannot practice medicine based on things you read, you know, you learning medicine years and years ago. So it's a constant learning. And that's why all of us are always going to the scientific sessions, getting the updates, reading the journals. Uh, many of us in academic medical centers are you know, editing the journals and and being and, and actually providing also research contributions to them. What are you hoping becomes your re- published research and your contributions as you're talking about it from a scientific perspective and yeah. you're doing things in the lab? Like- yeah, so um, the, the part of my research that I'm currently most excited about, that I work with a particular condition called um, aortic aneurysm. So the aorta is the biggest blood vessel in the body. It comes out of the heart and it gives blood to the rest of the body. And the part of the aneurysm, the li- uh, part of the sorry, the aorta that lies here in the chest, we call that the thoracic aortic aneurysm. Uh, this is a condition that is more common in men. So 70% of the people with this will be men. But if you are a woman and you have an aortic aneurysm, you are four times, uh, sorry, actually three times more likely to tear the aneurysm. It's called aortic dissection, which is really, really big deal. Uh, And you are 40% more likely to die as a result of the aneurysm. So it's more common in men, but the outcomes are far worse in women. So I study that, and I study that with my vascular health measures, because to me, one thing is to look at the aneurysm size and try to make predictions, but that doesn't tell the whole story. So I actually study the health of the aorta with my methodology to try to discern whose aorta is maybe a little bit healthier than the next, and how does that predict what's going to happen to the aneurysm. And we are seeing already that these uh, health uh, or chiral health measures that we do in our lab seem to actually predict the future growth of the aneurysm better than anything else we have right now. And we also observe some sex differences, how if you're a woman, then you have a really stiff, unhealthy aorta, you're much worse off uh, in terms of how your disease will progress. So that's what I'm, what I'm most excited about at the moment. We have a number of students working with us and presenting and publishing, and I think you're going to see more and more of that come out. Can we trust, I mean, 
when you're sought after and you're as competitive as you are and there's so many advancements that the Heart Institute really, as you said, was the, is the Disneyland of this, that you want to be able to make this mark here. Yes, and we and yeah. we do, right? So I just told you one little piece of everything mm-hmm. I do. So the, the advantage that we have, and we have been talking about the community uh, here at the Heart Institute, is that when it comes to women's heart health, the Heart Institute really believes in it, right? It's not just, uh, you know, doing something to, to kind of check a box. Right. They really believe in it. We talk about leadership, the board, the CEO, everybody involved. They really believe in it and they invest in it, right? So we have the Canadian Women's Heart Health Center, which was um, launched in 2014 with a very broad portfolio. So we have programs that are there for the clinical care. So I told you earlier about the cardiovascular risk management for people with preeclampsia. We have a women's heart health clinic, which I run. Uh, We have other risk management programs. We have a program for social support. Actually, we talk about stress. We didn't even talk about support, right? So um, once a woman woman is diagnosed with heart disease, there's very commonly this sense of isolation. Very often, she's the only woman that she knows that has heart disease very often. Um, and this is what fascinates me, is yeah. that they're feeling like they're so alone, yeah. and yet the numbers are not showing that. Because they may not know, people don't talk about it. Uh, they they may know other men, but they may not women. And also, uh, women, we are so often the the main providers for so many people. Not I shouldn't say providers, but caregivers, I think is a better word, mm-hmm. for so many people around us that, you know, once you leave the hospital, let's say you've been hospitalized at the Heart Institute with heart failure or heart attack or you just got a pacemaker or whatever it is, once you go home, you have to go back to your life and you have to go back to those uh, usual uh, duties and the caregiving for anybody around us. And and many women, not all, but many women find themselves in a situation of poor social support. And we know that social support is an important determinant of of health and is incredible need for women. So we also do have at the Women's Heart Health Center a program for social support for women with heart disease. It's called the Women in Heart Program is a superstar. So basically what happens is we take women that have heart disease, whichever type it is, and we train them. Just yesterday, I was actually lecturing to these women uh, and, and they get trained to be peer leaders. So they become very well educated about everything there is to do about heart and heart health. Uh, And then once they are graduated, they go out to their communities and they launch support programs in the community. Uh, They meet over six months every second week. They go through a curriculum that really helps people understand, first of all, they're not alone. They share their stories. They talk about ongoing management of their health because this is a chronic disease, right? You have a heart attack. You have a chronic disease. This is not an episode. So how do you manage that for the rest of your life? So all of this, all of these components of social support are then addressed by the Women at Heart program. It's it's an absolute delight uh, to to see the growth of that program. So all this to say that we at the Women's Heart Health Center we have so many things we're doing on the clinical front, on the research front, education. So here I am helping educate the public. Mm-hmm. I go and talk at conferences. We have uh, a summit which is I don't know if you. We've been part of it before, but we have now hosted two and are soon to host a third um, Canadian Women Heart Health Summit, which is the largest conference in the world dedicated exclusively to the unique aspects of cardiovascular health in women. So we had it 2016, 2018, who hosted again in 2020 in partnership with Heart and Stroke. So we're educating the public, we're educating providers. 
There's so many other things that we're doing. So this is something that is at the Heart Institute. It's really, really a gem. The Heart Institute supports it fully. The community supports it fully. The Canadian Women's Heart Health Center is actually only exists because of community dollars. The, the community wanted it to happen. The community has donated to the Heart Institute and we made it happen. And that's what's yeah. You don't want to end up there, but you need to realize um, that there are a number of factors that could land you there. Mm -hmm. um, and is it having the discussion with your own physician? Yeah. Is it is it realizing that you've had an elephant feel? You know, it, it's it's creating the dialogue and for people to take you yeah seriously exactly. And it doesn't. And regardless of your age, sure, common things being common, a woman in their thirties or forties with chest pain. It's less likely to to be the real deal, but it can happen too, right? So we have to all be aware that all of us could have it. We should all be taken seriously. And if it's a concern to you, and, and again, in my experience, women always have that sixth sense and they feel like, okay, I've had indigestion before, but this feels different. There's something wrong. So if you feel that feeling, there's something wrong or you want to know more, talk to your doctor and, and, and go from there. And even if you don't have symptoms, if you're completely asymptomatic, it's very important at any age that we take ownership of our health. What are, being informed, what are the risk factors for heart disease? What are the goals for you to control those risk factors? What do you have to do so you can be in your optimal cardiovascular health? So even if you don't have symptoms, get informed and know what these things are so you can be on top of it. I know, but and then you come back to healthy yeah. eating. Yeah, exercise. I, I mean, it's so much of it comes back to main factors that mm -hmm. it's just accepting. There's the the pill, that mm -hmm. magic pill. Yeah, that everyone's looking for, all bottled up. Yeah, so it, that that's difficult. So behavior change is the most difficult thing there is to do. Period. Right? It's so complicated, and everybody is different. So everybody's gonna need to have their reflection. I can speak for myself, the reflections that I have made. Um, basically, for me, after I had my my baby boy, so that was two and a half years ago, I, shortly after I came back from mat leave, which was six, my mat leave was six months, um, I got promoted, uh, which is something that doesn't happen very often, but I got promoted to the position that I ha now have. So in addition to now having motherhood, I was escalating my professional responsibilities. I, I just received a research grant two days my baby was born. So all this to say that once I came back, I came back with my agenda like bursting at the seams, right? So there's no time for exercise in there. There's no time to ha to eat healthy. You just go on, pick up a donut or whatever it is and, and move on. So I kept doing on, kept on doing that because, you know, I'm human too. Um, mm -hmm. Kept on doing that for um, uh, a good year or two years. And then uh, recently, the, within the past year, I just sat down. I took for myself what I called a, a retreat, a Thais retreat. I was in PEI for vacation. I took two days, booked myself in the hotel, and I was like, I'm just going to focus on what am I going to have to do about my life to make this change, to be able to reorganize things so I can be the healthiest version of myself. I find it fascinating that yeah. as much as you know, mm -hmm. and as much as yeah. the science is based, it's still as difficult for yeah. the expert to make those behavioral changes. Oh my goodness, yes, yes. So when you're prescribing the diet and the exercise and the healthy eating, you realize mm -hmm. what you're asking of someone. Oh, for sure. And and I always like to say this and, and, and impart this impression, I guess, of my own experience, because I don't want people on the other side to think, oh, she's a cardiologist. She knows 
perfect, right? That's not true. I mean, I'm a human being like everybody else. So everybody has their own struggle, whatever that is. For some people, it's because they smoke and they can quit. For some people, it's because they just love eating fast food or some people just don't want to exercise. So everybody has their, their little sore spot. So just have you just have to reflect and what are you going to do? So I took that retreat for myself again because I needed to reorganize my thoughts in my life and discover when I'm going to be able to 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 fit mm-hmm. uh, exercise back in my routine. Um, and I decided at that time, again, this is what works for me. doesn't mean that's what's going to work for everybody. That for me, it had to be 5 a.m. exercise before I get to the hospital. Because if I don't do it then, I just know through my 37 years of experience with this body that I will not do it then. So then I started to reorganize myself. So that every day, not every day, but most days, uh, 5 a.m., I'm, you know, exercising. I made it easy for myself. So everybody has their own abilities. So I I knew that if I had to drive somewhere or if I had to go outside in the snow, not going to happen for this Brazilian. So uh, I just made it easy for myself. I put my bike down in the basement and and I do it then. So for me, I, it took reflection. It took uh, organization and also organization of my workday, right? So when I'm at work, I don't want to be there all day if I can help it. I want to go home, spend time with my family and so forth. How can I reorganize the way I go about doing work so I can be as efficient as I can and still have time for family and exercise? So that's my personal experience, but that's an, an example of what it takes to make behavior change. There's a lot of self-reflection, understanding, planning, execution, failure sometimes to really get there. You must, if you can, as we're wrapping up, like, do you have, like, a story to leave us with? I know you mm-hmm. were saying, like, examples, you know, mm-hmm. trigger with people. <clears throat> that you have seen people's lives change mm-hmm. by them making a behavioral change mm-hmm. and then being in a desperate spot of near death to experiencing life in a very different way. Um, I think the experience of near death itself, some many times, serves as the ultimate motivator for behavior change. Right. So there are so many people, I will give you an example, that smoke and they know every smoker knows it's bad for them. There's no smoker that picks up a cigarette oblivious to the risk, but they don't quite understand that or they don't quite see the concrete risk ahead of them. It's all very abstract. And the, the moment there is an event, whether that's a heart event or a stroke or you no know, emphysema, whatever it is, that catalyzes change. So. In business, you, 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 you study the eight steps that it needs to make a change. And the first step is always to establish a sense of urgency, right? So for so many people, just the having that event is, uh, is what, it's, what it takes. So instead of giving you an example along those lines, I'll give you an example um, on the other side uh, of the spectrum, which is on the, on the preventive side. And I recently took care of a woman Young, I think she's in her 40s now, uh, who eight years ago had her last child. And I think she had had two or three pregnancies before. All of them were complicated with severe preeclampsia. And she never knew that that was a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And then she had been going around now for the past eight years, hypertensive, 
but not quite believing that she was. So you know how you go to the doctor, they check your blood pressure. Many times it's high and you people are very quick to say, oh, this is white cold hypertension. I'm pretty sure this is wrong. And then I think that's what she was doing. So she was going to doctor as needed um, and getting a high blood pressure and not believing that that was happening to her. Uh, so then what happened is I, I had given a talk to a group here in town about preeclampsia and cardiovascular risk. And the provider... Of uh, the, the the primary care provider for that patient was there. Watch the watch me talk. Refer the patient to me, and when I sat down with her and I gave her a blood pressure measurement a machine that she could wear on a 24-hour period, and listen to this. On average, in this 40-some-year-old woman, her blood pressure was running over 180 millimeters of mercury systolic, on average, which is very severe hypertension, and. So at that moment, we started talking about all of these things we talk about today, the importance of taking care of our own health and so forth. And we enrolled her in the in the uh, uh, health coaching program. And she has made incredible, incredible changes. You know, started exercising, lost weight. The blood pressure is now beautiful with the help of medication too, mm -hmm. because when it's that severe, you need medicine. Uh, but uh, she's really made all the positive changes in her life because she, she understood at that moment what it represented for her. So you have to get out of that denial situation that many times we find ourselves in. Say, okay, I'm going to have to take this uh, take this bull by the horn, literally. literally. And that's what she did. And now she's now uh, the picture of health. And it's been very nice to see that transformation. So I think it's a better example to give uh, mm -hmm. on, on the prevention yeah. side. Yeah. There was some uh, amazing information. Thank you. Uh, you know, we I know I could sit here and we can go on another hour. We can do it again. <laughs> we'll do it again. Yeah. There's always changes, as you said, like every three months. If you that's haven't right. read up, you're becoming obsolete. Uh, that there's always information that's changing. But hopefully uh, people were able to take kind of the basic factors today mm -hmm. and the understanding of exactly what we are dealing with, and especially for women, mm -hmm. uh, the differences that you need to understand as to why we differ uh, from the men when it comes to heart disease. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much Thank for you. being here. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, once again, people can find more information at ottawaheart.ca, mm -hmm. I believe is the Heart Institute's That's website. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there's always information, but there's a, lot, a number of these programs that you would talk to. And I'm assuming you've got to speak to your physician and to understand what's going on to be able to have access. But it's a start. It's it's awareness. That's right. And for the ones, uh, for the people in the audience that are listening to, they're trying to find specifically heart, women heart health information, mm -hmm. uh, our Canadian Women's Heart Health the center website is yourheart.ca. Okay. Yourheart.ca is all for women. You can find a lot of important information. You can find some of our programs. You can enroll in our virtual care platform where anybody can go in, track their risk factors, get some coaching, really optimize their health. So everything will be there for anybody who wishes to take care yeah. of their health. Yourheart.ca. Yourheart.ca. Thank you. All right. Thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, you can definitely check that one out as well. And thank you so much for uh, staying with us here on Living Your Life with Leanne Lang. That is a wrap on episode 44. And as always, please, if you like, uh, like it, subscribe, tell your friends as we're trying to grow uh, this podcast to be able to reach uh, a number of people all around the world. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you.
come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.